Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a writer and actor, creator and star of Love on Netflix. He's part of Don't Stop or Will Die and the titular Rust Half of With Gorley and Rust. Please welcome Paul Rust. Ah, oh, hey, George. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and for your support of uh, me and Matt's a little podcast with Gorley and Rust as well. It's much, much appreciated, George. Big fan, big fan. And, uh, you know, it's 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 just great having that positivity. You know, I, I, I've, I've said it before, but your show was a huge influence on my show just in terms of being like, you know, it's very easy to find people crapping on stuff online. And yeah. so creating a spot where people didn't have to feel like they had to soft sell their passion for a movie or something, even if it's yes. not one of the big names, uh, that's what this show is all about. You know? Oh, it, yeah. It, it, your podcast really is just like the perfect platform for people to share their love for something, which is, yeah, just perfect. And also, yeah, I, I've listened to it, and I just, the uh, vibes are great. It's just <laughs> well, like you. people speaking passionately, and I would also say sort of like without, uh, I don't want to say like fear of mockery, because I don't know who'd be mocking <laughs> anybody, but just like, you know, sometimes you filter things through, like, I don't want to seem too passionate <laughs> about something, but it really, this is going to sound so new agey or dorky, but it, it does like create a space for people to just be really open with their feelings. So uh, I love it for that reason too, brother. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's the goal. So glad that that's coming across. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, where it all started for you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, just uh, growing up, I loved movies and movies of all kinds. But my family, my mom, my dad, my two older sisters, we all loved, and I grew up in this, being the youngest, just in a house that loved comedies and also thrillers, suspense movies, like uh, like a Hitchcock movie. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just being around that and them loving it, and if it was on TV, we would turn it on and watch it, and, you know, memories of stuff like... Uh, the bad seed and then liking stuff like we'd be flipping through the channels on a Saturday night and see a this movie I think called like Night of the Lepus about like a yes. big big <laughs> rabbit, rabbit that yes. coming at yes <laughs> <laughs> we'd stop and watch that and just like laugh at how corny it was sure. so it was both high and low we loved everything and my parents they would also rent you know this was the time of video stores when I was growing up the way I think I understood storytelling in movies was eating cereal the next morning as my parents would summarize the movie they saw the night before to each other. A lot of times because my dad would have fallen asleep, so my <laughs> mom would have to like... And so just hearing a story kind of like warmly told over breakfast in the morning was actually very... Even if it was like... Then they found out that he did his wife. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, then once uh you know once I got to be the age where you can start watching sneaking away, watching this stuff with friends, it was very. I was really scared to watch my first horror movie, but I watched Friday Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason Takes Manhattan, a classic, the jewel, yes. the jewel of that franchise. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then yeah, it started off uh, a love for those Jason movies, and then. I'd say from age 12 on, it was just, 
a healthy diet of horror movies along with comedies and thrillers and you know the movies that like I realize now in retrospect it was all like <laughs> to cry or something it was just, <laughs> I went and saw Magnolia in the theater just so I could cry it was sure. like why would I spend a ticket on something that wouldn't give me a visceral body response to the stuff I was watching <laughs> otherwise yes. what am I wasting my money and time on <laughs> cider house rules <laughs> what about you i'm just curious like what was your first horror movie or horror hit yeah so i was a very cowardly little boy (laughs) i remember i was on like a school trip to washington dc you know Uh on those school trips they pack you in the hotel room like six or eight to a room because they're like no sardine status in here and everyone was like we're gonna watch the it miniseries whoa yeah and I was too scared. I was more scared to say that I didn't want to watch mm-hmm. it than I was of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I mean, literally the first thing that happens in that story is a little kid named Georgie gets murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Same age, but, you know, yes. like, yes. Oh, my God. So, so that. I would say it sort of put me off horror for a long time, mm-hmm. but it was also that same kind of like fascination with it, no matter what, where, you know, as Wikipedia started getting bigger and bigger, I would like read the synopses of plots to movies that I was too scared to go see. Yes. But, and of course, you know, it's uh, you build it up in your head. It's always way worse reading about it. Uh, and so as I started de- like developing <laughs> my passion for movies in general, I was like, I can't consider myself well-rounded and just ignore a genre. <laughs> yes yeah (laughs) right 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 that's true and so uh so i i sort of actually did like immersion therapy on myself basically (laughs) where i was just like i'm gonna sit here and marathon the the tentpole franchises and i actually started with friday the 13th as well oh fun and it totally hooked me i loved it oh lucky you it was the perfect thing because not only is it in my opinion the most consistent of those mm-hmm. tent poles but I also agree. i agree <laughs> it, al- yeah, it also like it, it starts out with fun effects but that are so clearly fake that you can put yourself at a remove from it most definitely and then as the effects get better the storytelling maybe gets a little more slipshod. And Uh so you can kind of remove yourself that way and you get used to both at the same time. Yes. It was just a lot of fun. I I still love those uh, Friday the 13th movies in particular. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. I went to summer camp every every year. So Woo, lucky you! Yeah, so, oh so my the god! Full experience. Also, there was a small frog boy running around all the time. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would jump out, pull people out of their canoes and yeah. rowboats. <laughs> uh, classic camp activity. <laughs> <laughs> no, just hearing you on those details, like the It miniseries was definitely the. Stove is too hot, and I'm not going to touch it of horror stuff. I saw, like, a commercial or a coming up or a previously (laughs) on of it that was Pennywise by an open grave or something, and it really shook me. And you're making me recall how, like, a year later when it was time to watch my first Friday 13th, I was like, is this going to be, like, it? (laughs) We're just... In a frame could mess me up for life, man. <laughs> and then totally, I hear you. When 
Those Friday 13th movies were a ride where the fear that it's going to be way scarier and then having kind of this haunted house goofball (laughs) effect for gore, it really is just like a newcomer's perfect version to get into those types of movies. Yeah. And then the other thing you just made me recall on was, you know, the like the fear of watching the movie is actually less than the fear of saying, I'm scared to watch it. Can we watch something else? (laughs) And the version of that for me was the double bind that I would find myself in and friends would find themselves in at sleepovers. It's like, okay, are we going to watch the exorcist and lose our minds? (laughs) But then you'd hear a story about a kid who was like, he saw it and then he was in fifth or sixth grade and he had to spend the next month sleeping on his parents' floor because he was too scared to sleep in his own bed. Okay, so when you hear that, you're just like, whoa, that's a movie that's going to scare me so much I got to sleep in the same room with my parents. But also, the true, true horror, a la, I I don't want to tell my friends I'm scared to watch it, is... I'm going to have to admit to my parents that I knowingly watched The Exorcist, and they're going to be like, what is wrong with you, good little boy? I thought you were a good little boy. You're watching bad little boy movies? So that was the double bind of those movies as well. And oh, thankfully, yeah. yeah, those Friday 13th movies never put me in a position where I had to sleep on the floor of my parents' bedroom. <laughs> So, you, I mean, you talk about slashers a lot, obviously. You mentioned growing up on suspense thrillers and stuff like that. Do you have a favorite subgenre? Yeah, I, uh, I guess it, I would say it's uh, slasher movies. And then I'm trying to think, <laughs> is there a sub subgenre? Is there a subgenre within slashers or something? But no, I, I, I think what I like, oh, you know, the thing is, I love all horror movies of all kinds. It's like an ice cream shop. There are so many flavors and the way the different flavors can actually go together in different ways. So I'm not like automatically against paranormal stuff. I watched the new uh, Hellraiser movie and I loved it. There you that go. stuff is full of bonkers made up stuff. <laughs> but I think what the slasher offers to me that like, I like in any movie, regardless if it's a horror movie, is when everything is basically normal that so matches reality, and then the horror is this sort of real-life, could-occur, unusual thing. That's like my favorite. I'm not saying put down any others. It's just, that's <laughs> my very, very, very favorite. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and so slashers, until they yeah be- start fighting carry knockoffs and uh, 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 (laughs) start transporting into different bodies. Those early ones, uh, yeah, there's so much fun to just the real terror of if I was at camp, if I was getting babysat, if I was having dreams and I can't control my dreams, like those are all like, I mean, that's paranormal, I guess, but it's still real enough that there's an entryway for me. Yeah, I also think that with paranormal stuff in particular, but in many other genres, there is a little bit more like free reign to get wild with it versus John Carpenter has talked about how slasher movies in particular are like the closest to the oral tradition <laughs> in that oh, like wow, yeah. uh-huh. you just get these stock characters and stock t- situations and you can kind of slot them in however you want. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, you get that sort of cozy feeling because <laughs> you get to sort of have an understanding of the way it's going to shake out ahead of time. 
you, you're oh, sort of familiar yes. with it. It breeds that familiarity in a way that I think not like a ghost or whatever. You don't know what a ghost can do. You don't know its limitations or whatever. Yes. No, you're right. The confines of reality and also just like the confines of a formula. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I love movies. It's my favorite thing, but I'm a dope when it comes to following stories, remembering stories, knowing how to talk about how the stories <laughs> I mean it, it really for me is like scene to scene what I'm liking and the fact that like with a slasher it's very easy just to go yeah I know what it's gonna be a big group they get knocked off one by one so I can enjoy how they're dressed and what the trees look like in the background <laughs> like, yeah. It just, it, yeah 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 frees you up to take in the details for sure yeah yeah, what's wrong with that now, huh? Taking nothing, the details. Nothing yeah, wrong nothing. with that. <laughs> uh, we're talking today, though, about the perfect pick for the transition from suspense to slasher. One of the Ooh. biggest proto slashers out there, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Woo! Yeah, we were just talking off Micah right before we started that when you gave me the list of movies that have been discussed previously, I checked like three times and then you joked. Well, Psycho 2, yes. <laughs> Takes precedence before that, but... Of course, of course. You know, you got to get the, the landmarks. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even say this at all is a, like, one arm tied behind my back pick. Like, unequivocal ranking top three horror movies for me. So, the fact that it hadn't been chosen, and then I get to chat about it with you, wow. it's a... Uh, it's, it's, Talk about thrills. <laughs> That's not the shower scene. It's our conversation about it. You were shocked and I was shocked as well. I This is one of my favorite movies. I love it. it we watched it in like a film class in high school. Fun. And it was truly like kind of a, a shift for me in terms of like what older movies could be. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it so much immediately. And my dad is a big fan of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Ah! As well as, you know, all of the like Twilight Zone and all that stuff. So yes. we watched a lot of that growing up. So I had that familiarity with Hitchcock. And I just I think that this movie is so fantastic. I'm so excited to finally get to talk about it. Yeah. I, and uh, uh, you're making me recall that the, our house more than Hitchcock movies was Hitchcock presents as a TV show along with Twilight Zone and and but yeah the fact that then I'm sure we'll get into it that uh the psycho was made by his Alfred Hitchcock presents TV crew as a kid I don't know it's easy to slip into your brain that this is just kind of an extended Alfred Hitchcock pre- or higher but like it just the black and white yeah. and sort of the uh cinematic but not necessarily like epic cinematic uh small cast and everything too yeah you know, like, right the low budget comes across in a great way yeah what was the film class in high school uh it was just like an introduction to film kind of thing but we kind of like went through some of the big names up until where we were at the time so you know we, we watched citizen kane and all that stuff but this was oh, definitely cool. the one that really uh, cemented it for me. And yeah, I mean, very lucky to have had a film class in high school. Yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> that. That's awesome that you uh, had a teacher, uh, uh, that you had a class like that to learn about movies, but then also have a grown-up who obviously loves movies and was talking about them. My mom was my teacher when I was in high school. We, I lived in a small town, so it was like once a uh, semester per 
year of high school, I would usually have her as my literature teacher or like yearbook teacher, class teacher, uh, journalism teacher. But I do recall one time they did this thing that was just like, hey, for a week, we're going to power down and the teachers don't have to teach. They're given subject matter. They can just choose what they want to teach about and the kids can kind of take it almost as if it was like elective courses. And my mom, she used her week. She did a week focusing on film noir. Wow, that rocks. Yeah, yeah. So she showed the class film noir movies and uh, talked about them and talked about their history and stuff. So uh, as I was like, oh, that's so cool that George had that. I was like, well, I guess mother (laughs) was offering it to others as well, uh, uh, her classmates. There you go. There you go. A lot of great noir as well, not only from Hitchcock, but yeah, uh, also in that class, we watched Double Indemnity, which is also really fantastic. Oh, yeah. I think that's probably one of the best, along with Psycho, best uh, black and white movies to show high school kids to get them excited about black and white movies. Yeah, (laughs) I I agree. I really do. (laughs) So Peggy Robertson... Famous Alfred Hitchcock personal assistant as well as script supervisor said in the making of for this movie that every week he'd read the New York Times book section. And during the post-production of North by Northwest, they'd read the positive review of Psycho and asked Paramount about coverage for it, which to put in layman's terms is like the grading of a script or whatever, according to a studio's rubric for how ripe it is for adaptation. And Paramount just kind of shrugged. And so he forgot about it until he saw it in an (laughs) airport. And he read it on the way to London, and he called her back right after the flight saying, I've got the subject. And so they purchased the rights for $9,500. Holy cow. And bring bring this door. I love background details. Oh, yeah. I'm all about them. I'm all about the extra features on any DVD. I'll rebuy stuff just so I can get the added features uh, that they added. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea of the book being out... This must have been post-movie when the movie had come out and then they re-released the book. But I remember in the basement of my dad's house where my grandparents lived, they had like a paperback copy of Psycho. And it Mm. was so cool, you know, like the yellowed paper, like the white along the black uh, front cover and stuff. I probably saw that and other Psycho ephemera before I ever, you know, saw the movie. Yeah. Like hearing the Weird Al version before you ever hear the real song. <laughs> that was definitely me with a lot of Stephen King stuff as well. My dad is a huge Stephen King fan, and he had like a, a, a wall of Stephen King books that I would just like look up at in terror. Again, especially with the way that It is a Stephen King book and, oh, and affected yeah. me. It was really all coming together. <laughs> My father invited this into our own home. Doesn't he know? He is a Pennywise. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is so cool. I mean, we, my mom read all kinds of things, but like we had some books that like were so fun to pull off the shelf and look at the cover and be like, whoa, <laughs> what deadly delights does the Reader's Digest version of Jaws 2 offer? <laughs> <laughs> Among some detail changes for the book, it's also a more violent book. It's closer to that of the Ed Gein case that influenced it and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, including specifically Mary instead of Marion being beheaded in the shower. And Norman is uh, more unassuming. He's like balding and chubby, uh, middle-aged and a drunk who's into occult mysticism. <laughs> As, you know, and you compare that to the incredibly handsome and winsome Tony Perks. It's quite a shift. Quite a shift. Yes. 
Yeah, uh, if you read that book, I bet you wouldn't go, uh, ah, Tony Perkins. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the crazy detail, too, of Robert Block, who wrote it being like 45 miles away from Ed Gein, the, that, and so he claims that it, you know, might have been inspired, but wasn't fully taking from that. Right. There's a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then, yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing then to think about how... Ed Gein is both Norman Bates' origin, Texas Chain- Leatherface's Texas Chainsaw, and then Hannibal Lecter or uh, Buffalo, you know, the, the world of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. <laughs> if Ed Gein only knew <laughs> <laughs> what his weird, perverse life would inspire people to create. It really is wild. I mean, those are like three of the hugest <laughs> characters in horror history. <laughs> and the way they kind of like each cycled through basically clocking every like uh, 14 years it was like bring back on the ed gein bus. <laughs> the waves of horror all get cataloged yeah. through ed gein <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the book also has right along with the mysticism i've never read it but uh, the it's also like the the movie sounds more clever in that the book you read it and he's having conversations with his mother being there mm-hmm. and so it's a little, uh, I wouldn't say it's cheating. It's just like y- your brain would, it'd be harder to maybe think that there was a ruse going yeah. on if you're just like, oh, he's having conversations <laughs> with his mom. And then, yeah, that that choice of, I mean, I'm sure the real life Ed Gein or whatever, or somebody in this situation probably would be more balsam than Perkins. Mm-hmm. But that choice, I guess, does, uh, it reminds me a little bit of with your dad being a big Stephen King fan. The choice with Carrie, too, that the novel version and then this winsome sort of like wallflower version in the movie. I mean, did the the Anthony Perkins thing, I think it probably has to just do with the movies overall, like whatever its aims are, which, you know, as we talk about it more, for me, it does seem to be like on the surface, things seem pleasant, just slightly under the surface, things are ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, definitely. I, I think having Anthony Perkins actually is like the perfect. If you cast a character who is more character actory rather than like a sort of a pretty man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then forget about then how you would even pull off him in the mother's dress, and that that would work when you see her silhouette. But I think it also just yeah, just feels more correct in whatever the movie is the movie is doing yeah it has to i mean the visual language has to shift in order to communicate it visually yeah i will also say so one of the things i listened to was the hitchcock truffaut conversations there's a Mm -hmm. very famous book of interviews and truffaut also slams the book here's a quote from him oh let me hear he says it's very poor worse than bad i'm surprised it was written frankly it's so absurd and almost dishonest the way he talks to the mother but it does translate well to cinema and I will say, I see this point because I actually did read it while I was preparing. Right on! And he does directly interact with her, but there are also a lot of passages that imply the unreliability of Norman's perspective. Okay. Including specifically saying at one point, I suspect I have some mild schizophrenia. (laughs) (laughs) You can follow the breadcrumbs. Yeah, it kind of tampered that uh, criticism for me a little bit. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One other interesting change in the book is, or from the book to the movie, is that in the book, Arbogast tells Norman about the money. Oh. 
And so in, in the perspective shifts, since we're in the internal monologue of Norman at times, he's like, there's some fun conflict there. He's like, ah, oh, they're going to be chasing that money unrelated to the uh, crime of passion okay, here. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, look, I had always heard that the book was terrible. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, it, there's enough differences to keep it fresh for me. I wouldn't say that it's better than the movie by any stretch, but uh, I will say if you're if you're a psycho fan out there, maybe check it out. That is awesome. I'm so uh, that's so cool that you read that and that uh, you're able to kind of like <laughs> speak to its quality. Come on, guys, let's make sure we don't totally uh, denigrate this thing that gave us something we love so much. Yeah, block boys, stand up. <laughs> <laughs> Let that be known, you said, block boys, not proud boys, block right. boys, not proud boys. <laughs> block I boys. might have cl- cleared my throat over it, I just wanted to make it clear that uh, that's what you said. But then also, something you said about in the, oh, the, the yeah, the money thing, that is so interesting. It adds some dimension to, like, the balls he's, like, juggling. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... They were looking for a writer for the movie, and they got recommended Joseph Stefano, who conceived of the focus on Marion as a way to both convince Hitchcock that he was right for the movie, as well as solve the main issue of how do you have a movie about a dead mother where you don't know that she's dead? And then Hitchcock said we could get a star to play the part of Marion, and Stefano was like, and I knew I had the job, which made me chuckle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Old Hollywood stories. (laughs) And after that first meeting, he said they never mentioned the book again or referred to it, and that Hitchcock wouldn't really discuss motivation because that's up to you, Joseph, (laughs) which (laughs) seems like a tough way to collaborate. But Stefano said he either had faith in you as a writer or he didn't. And if he didn't, I don't think you'd be working with him. You know what's so crazy? This not only is Psycho like the you're right, like a, one of the proto slashers and kicked off this whole other genre of movies, but the fact that it also might have been one of the proto examples of adapting pulpy trash for a movie. It's not like we're adapting Gone with the Wind, this book that uh, America believes is one of the great American novels, and we're finally adapt. We're adapting it for the screen. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like, hey, this book actually just has a really great genre movie in it, and then it's like the same as like it's the proto version of whatever The Exorcist, The Godfather, Jaws, all yeah. those movies you hear about where they're like, oh, the movie is actually way better book because the books were kind of these like just trashy books people like the world in and then a better movie was made out of it so hey psycho also did that too there you go yeah you know it's funny because uh, again hitchcock plays a lot with noir which i you know it probably feels like that's also a natural evolution of noir pulp as well and mm-hmm. stefano said that this is a quote from hitch look at these horror pictures that are making fistfuls of money for no budget now imagine if somebody good did one which really cracked me up uh, presumably referring to william castle who was killing it at the time with house on haunted hill and things like that but i I like those movies as well although uh, i don't know if i would put him in the same rank as as hitchcock (laughs) that's funny i uh it makes it it sounds very familiar to like a stanley kubrick saying to finally make a good horror movie like (laughs) these guys they they're watching these guys make Money hand over fist <laughs> with these uh, tawdry horror movies. They're like, okay, well, maybe if I do a 
more art movie version of that than uh, yeah. I like money. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a minute! I like money too. And so, yeah, Hitchcock was good, and he knew who to get to support his vision. Like you said, his TV crew, who knew the Hitchcock-style guide that he had for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and they also knew how to work quickly to make the most of the under $1 million budget. Wow. Wow. I think that's my favorite. There's so there's a, a behind-the-scenes details. The, the one that I think is kind of the most, like, uh, yeah, I'll say it, punk rock (laughs) is that alfred hitchcock like no studio wanted to make this movie people saw it as kind of like a dirty movie and but he really wants to make it so he like in almost like as much diy as he could he did it on his own independently and i'm sure he had independence making his movies it's not like (laughs) this is the first time he had the taste of doing so but just like saying I'll do something at a lower budget and embrace like the scrappiness of shooting something quickly is anytime a filmmaker does that I love it yeah it just feels really exciting you just kind of see it on the screen and it kind of loses any sort of like stuffy pretentious trappings so yeah I I I mean Psycho is one of my favorite movies but just uh as a Hitchcock movie, I just also love it because it is like his grimy is like yeah. grungiest. <laughs> yeah, this is his exploitation movie. I yes. mean, literally. And I love that as well. I, I think it's so great. And, you know, we you hear so often that people are, you know, movies can be enhanced by the limitations in terms of like having to find creative methods around it. Yeah. And like, would this be as good in color? I genuinely don't know. But that's a decision that was made partially because it was cheaper to get that film, partially because of the gore that was going to be in there and dealing with the censors. You know, if they had more money, maybe they would have shot in color. Maybe it wouldn't have been as great. Who knows? Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, Gus Van Sant answered that question for us of what it would look like in color and we know it's superior. (laughs) No, uh, uh, you know, I was watching the uh, 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 what's the new... New way they've tricked me into buying stuff. Uh, what's the newest version oh, 4K? of the Blu-ray? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I did get that, but I did get the uncut version of Psycho. Yeah. With like the three extra little bits. And to see that black and white photography, it is just gorgeous. It's like oh. flipping through a, a Life magazine or something. Just these really just crisp, you know, and then the thing that probably adds to it is like, I like how mundane... So much of the movie is. So just kind of having it look more like a textbook rather than an illustrated children's book. Yeah. (laughs) Does have its own effect. But you bring it up color. I mean, like, if you saw it in color, I think maybe the effect could be good is, like, that it's more, whatever, the verisimilitude (laughs) that it's going for. Sure. The idea that it could be anywhere off any beaten path. Certainly. Yeah. And if you're, like, standing next to kind of, like, a faded yellow Bates Motel Mm. with kind of an icky color quality against her clothes, her car, all that stuff could be, like, pretty cool, so. Yeah, yeah, hey, you raise a very valid point, Paul. Hey, let's colorize it tonight. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you're on, you're on. (laughs) I will say I also have, like, two 
4K collections from that that are put out of Hitchcock movies. And just last night, I was watching The Trouble with Harry. And wow, fun. It was, first of all, loved the movie. But also, there's a moment, like, during the big kiss between the two leads, there oh. was, like, a fly just, like, hanging out on his shoulder and, like, buzzing around. Ah. <laughs> I was like, there's no way you could see this before because it <laughs> is so distracting. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god you're so right at no like late night tv version has ever shown that fly that was airing uh you know in the late night hour also i love that maybe for years that fly has been telling his friends that he's in a hitchcock movie and they never they're like yeah we watched it we didn't see you he's like no 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 i was there and now finally the 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 this is out he could be like see i yeah. was right his great, 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 great grandkids are vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they love it. <laughs> great Pappy Fly. They He's taste in that there. vindication. So sweet. <laughs> um, and yeah, you, you talked about the studios not really wanting to touch this. He was in like a really weird spot at the time as well, because this oh. was the last movie on his contract for Paramount. And they were pissed that he was leaving for Universal. And so Universal was like, we can, you can use the lot, but like, we're, we're not like making the movie for you. Wow. Because Paramount was still going to be the one distributing it. So, um, yeah, through Shamley Productions is, is the Hitchcock production company and, and funded it through there. And the only feature, the feature film crew member that he brought over really that was consistent workers with him was Bernard Herman, who's incredible and, and, and we'll definitely talk about him. But also editor George Tomasini, who I think that's huge for this movie. You know, ah. this lives and dies in the editing, I think, uh-huh. because it is so tenuously balanced in terms of pacing. You know, like you said, I like yeah. that it is a little stodgy and that we take our time getting to stuff. But it would also be very easy for it to tip over and go too far and be too slow. Uh huh. Uh huh. I think that having a good editor, someone who's used to working on movies, yeah. was a smart decision. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 When you watch the movie, it does feel. Uh, I just rewatched it this morning. The thing that I was recognizing for the first time—it's it's what's fun about rewatching movies. You notice new things. The silent portions, like the gaps of the movie where it kind of goes like an extended maybe like seven or four to nine minutes, it's almost like in a song when it either goes to the verses or the chorus. Mm-hmm. It's just like, and then they break and they have like a verse and the verse is the long parlor scene where they're talking. <laughs> yeah. But then the chorus is the murder scene and then the cleaning it up and then the verses are back. It's... it's you're right. The way it's edited is actually this sort of like perfectly taut balance of those two gears. Yeah. We have Janet Lee as Marion Crane. When Hitchcock sent her the novel, she was like, I don't even need to read the book to accept, <laughs> but I will. <laughs> she said that she loved the idea of the twist and having being shuffled off relatively early. And she also mentioned loving working with Tony Perkins as Norman Bates. We did obviously talk about how he's less sympathetic in the books, but one of Stefano's challenges was to create that dynamic so that we have a character with vulnerability and sadness that we could switch our empathy to after Marion is killed. You know, it's it's that's a, such a, a magic trick that after he kills Marion, we're still like, oh, I hope he gets away with it. <laughs> like that yes. is that's movie magic. And and yes. one quote 
from uh, Stefano here that he said is, if Norman was a painting, he'd be painted by Edward Hopper, which I love. Whoa, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that big shift of identification. And, it, you know, it starts, you know, when she gets... Well, it probably starts in the parlor scene where, you know, like Curb Your Enthusiasm when they say like, oh, the reason you like Larry David is because in those early seasons, his wife likes him. (laughs) (laughs) And so in some ways you can see how he's lovable. Like your identification with Marion, like because she is tender to Norman and he's tender to her, that begins kind of the like, whatever the seduction of us being like, Oh, maybe this character's a okay main character. Also, I love that like it is eventually about hoping Norman gets away with it, but the fact that the movie's already gotten you on board with hoping she gets away with stealing the money. You're <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, already point. <laughs> identified with the person who's like committed a crime. Yeah. Wow. They and got then our you're asses. like Yeah, yeah. It's like bring it on more. Bring on more people, criminals we can identify with. But then She's sympathetic, and then, yeah, once she's murdered, and the cleanup begins, and I'm sure you came across this name in this book when you were doing your research, this guy Stephen Rebello, who wrote this Making a Psycho book. My favorite audio commentary, next to Robert Town and David Fincher's for Chinatown, is Stephen Rebello's commentary for Psycho. And he says, when he was in the theater, when it came out, He was seated behind or in front of two women. And when Norman started cleaning up after the the murder in the shower, he overheard one of them go say, such a good son. (laughs) (laughs) And that like stuck with him. And I do think then that begins the full on identification where you're just like, this guy cares about his mommy. Yeah. Looking out for his mommy here. Who cares what he has to do? And then, yeah, just the punctuation mark of that, of course, is that swamp scene where it sticks. And he gets nervous. <laughs> and we get nervous for him. It's like, and then, like, in any other movie, if the bad guy was trying to get away with a murder, you'd be happy that it got stuck. Now yeah. you're bummed out. And then it goes down, and then you're relieved for him. So, really, just so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, a lot of the discussion of Tony Perkins was of his own great personality, but also the the sadness that he had. Janet Lee said in the documentary that he felt like he knew what it was to be trapped. And there are ways that his life definitely reflects Norman's. And I did mention this in our Psycho 2 episode, but there was this wild article from People magazine in 1983 where they're like, why is Anthony Perkins so good as Norman Bates? Why? Because of insane childhood trauma, of course. <laughs> Yeah, refresh me, because it is like a a background that's very... uh, uh, And when we're done talking about this, I will soon rhapsodize about Anthony Perkins and think how he's... uh, uh, This is my favorite performance in any movie ever. Oh, yes. So to sum it up, basically his father, Osgood, was a famous stage actor, and he was gone a lot. And so Tony would get jealous when dad intruded on his life with just mom there. And so when his dad died at just 45... The five-year-old Tony felt incredibly guilty. And then you compound this with the fact that Miss Perkins wound up coming right up to the line of molestation, basically, in terms of how affectionately she treated him over the rest of his childhood. And Tony became terrified of women for real, despite plenty of interest from them. 
And so he wound up having some gay relationships with men like Tab Hunter, claims to have found it unsatisfying, and after, quote, intense encouragement from a psychotherapist, finally had sex with a woman at 39 before shortly thereafter meeting his wife-to-be, Barry Berenson. And that said, he ultimately died of AIDS at 60, and his wife wasn't a carrier, so there's thoughts that he was bi or possibly just actually gay and still grappling with his sexual identity at that point. And then unrelated but also wild, uh, his wife died in one of the hijacked planes on 9-11. I know. Uh, is, uh, this is a complicated, sad, joyful life. But thank you for sharing those because it does add such a dimension to this portrayal Yeah, that I will say is... Yeah, like I said a moment ago, regardless of any genre in any movie, period, my favorite movie character is Norman Bates, and my favorite performance by an actor is Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. I 1,000% love this performance, and uh, it's probably, somebody was to ask me what my favorite film performance over the last 15 years, somebody asked me that, that'd be my go-to. It is just, it's why I keep re-watching this movie. He is so perfect in it. We can talk about it more as scenes come up, but I, I love him in it. Definitely, yeah. I, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it for sure, but one of my favorite scenes in movies is just their talk in the parlor. Mm-hmm. And it's just them bouncing off each other. Like, it's just a conversation, and they are yeah. so incredibly effective at capturing these characters and the melancholy that they both feel and how trapped they feel you know they're talking explicitly about it but also still dancing around the exact circumstances it is a delicate balance it's beautiful it's it's incredible yeah it is beautiful it's incredible i mean when you said you watched this in high school and it made you realize what older movies could be When you said that, the first scene I flashed on was the parlor scene. Yeah. But the first time I watched this movie, I remember being really into the movie throughout, not ever having like a moment where I'm out of it. Just And then when the parlor scene happened, it was the first time I remember thinking, oh, I'm watching a a movie for grownups and I'm liking it. Mm. You know, now when I rewatch it as a (laughs) grownup, I think what I do like about it because it's rare for a movie of that era, but it's a rare for a movie of any era, that people speak with as much depth as people do in everyday life all the time. People are really good at grasping, at least being able to talk about how their lives work, especially if you're with a stranger and you don't, you can kind of just have a conversation and not have to like... So to hear two people really... When, when he says that thing about we're all trapped, you said it, we're all trapped in our own ways. It's cool because it's a mask dropping off in the movie, but it's also a mask the movie's dropping. It's just like, oh, every movie could have a scene where a character goes, we're all trapped and feel lonely, <laughs> but they don't. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. I, I think that there's like a, a, a naturalism to it as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that when people think about older movies, part of the issue is that there's sort of like a, a, a pictured stodginess in the delivery a lot yeah. of the time. And I think that Anthony Perkins as Norman 
is he just truly feels like he is capturing a person there. It doesn't feel like a performance. Yes, it it feels so timeless and contemporary. Mm-hmm. His performance, you could still pluck out and put it... You're right, the way, it, like his gestures of when he says, are you, you sure I can't convince you to stay a little longer? And she's like, no, no, no. And then he puts his hand up and he's like, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> that is like such a contemporary, like naturalistic thing that I totally... Believe, yeah, it, it it really is incredible for that the degree that it's contemporary. I was gonna just offer up that like, yeah, when you watch the remake with Vince Vaughn, he just makes the choice of like this guy's a creep to begin with, <laughs> such a dumb choice. So for the moment, he's got like dark circles around his eyes. He's like beep boop beep beep, <laughs> beep. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't or the filmmakers whoever and i'm not slagging on that i do like that remake i'll watch it anytime but that yeah the idea not being that like this character's whole life has been i'm presenting a version of myself that my mother would approve of mm-hmm. to all people all times that's the trap he's in exactly he can't be a personality outside of who he is around his mom so when you're watching that video, you're like, with Vince Vaughn, you're like, your mom would think you're a creep. <laughs> she would say, take a shower. Button that top button. Shave, my boy. That's right. He had to He had to be the perfect mother's boy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. One of the challenges that Janet also discussed in the, in the behind the scenes stuff was that Hitchcock said his camera is absolute. It's the focal point. So when it moves, you need to move with it. And people have discussed in the past feeling cramped by this forced blocking. But she said, hey, that's my job. I can find a character motivation to be moving around no problem. And I do think that it creates an interesting dynamism for her to stay in the center of the frame and still be moving with the camera. Yeah, that's so true, dude. Like when that moment when she leaves the office and it like it dissolves from like the moment she walks across from left to right and then it dissolves to the her apartment that she lives in her yes. bedroom yes and then she re-enters left to right it's sort of like yeah these scenes begin and end when she leaves them and then she re-enters them yeah that power she holds and then yeah as the movie goes on how she then is up until the moment she's murdered it is all about how subjective other subjectivities are looking at her and trying to determine what she's about. Right. (laughs) And so the fact that like we're focused on her in the center of the frame, but then yeah, also you got like three guys at that car dealership, the seller, the mechanic and the cop all be like, what's this lady up to? (laughs) Let's just stare at her as object yeah i mean i think it's all knowing in that it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty incredible how what it's doing definitely definitely and the pain of it oh. oh my god to live in a small town george and you're growing <laughs> up and all the subjectivities out there know you mm-hmm. and if they see you walking down the street they'll pick up a phone and be like i saw so and so on the street you that that you live in a world like that it's that is the power of that first like 30 minutes of psycho for me. Mm-hmm. The ways you can go down strange paths in your brain when you start thinking about what other people are saying about you and yes. how you're coming across. And But uh, sorry, continue. No, continue. I, I love those moments. I, I think that they are really special and, and great yes. little interludes, especially when they kind of bounce back and forth between like 
depending on how things are going, how the conversations play out in her mind and everything. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> we also get John Gavin as Sam Loomis, the name inspiration for Dr. Loomis in Halloween, and then Billy Loomis in Scream, I guess, is named after a combo therein, thanks to the lineage. So it's kind of funny to think that in another timeline, it's Dr. Milton Arbogast screaming about not knowing what evil is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Dr. Loomis, as played by Donald Pleasance, is way more of an Arbogast. <laughs> kind of this sleuther. Yeah. I mean, he shares with Sam Loomis, I guess, that um, he's related to the final semi-apprehension mm-hmm. of the killer right. at the end. But, yeah, I was thinking about the lineage of the Loomis name and that it does go to scream and... It does seem to be shift. It's like Loomis is clear good guy. Maybe he's a divorcee and he's shacking up with this woman out of, and then they're not married. But Gosh. not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> and then the uh, next Loomis is a hero of sorts, uh, the Donald Pleasant thing. And then, and then Billy is like at first like the. Beginning of Psycho Loomis, and then mm. he becomes, yeah, Michael Myers or something. I love it. I love Hollywood in-jokes and reuses of names. Yeah. It's just more fun for a movie lover. But that's some balls. <laughs> I mean, I think Friday the 13th is more of a homage to Psycho than Halloween is. So, and Carrie, the fact that Carrie calls it Bates High. And, yeah. And, uh, I'm like, guys, 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 <laughs> you really think you're that much like Psycho? <laughs> we know who Michael Myers is from the beginning to the end. There's no surprise. Friday the 13th, we don't know who it is, and it's a mother. Big twist. Big twist. Yeah, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Vera Miles as Lila Crane, Marion's sister. She was actually groomed to play the lead in Vertigo, but then got pregnant, and she still owed Hitchcock another movie on her contract. And I think that this is really important because although Vera kind of feels like a small part, it is important to have a great actor there because they're the anchor that keeps us going along for the mystery portion. Having Vera Miles be like, no, we need like, what are we just waiting around for? We need to keep the investigation going. If we're not interested in her, if we don't feel aligned with her, then it it just the back half kind of falls apart. Holy cow, you're right. Like, that's a big moment when she's in that tool shop uh, and meeting with Sam. Because you haven't seen her once. It is the person now you're going to have to follow. And yeah, I think she's great. Yeah. She's she's awesome. Yeah, that backstory with Hitchcock does seem a little, like, weird. You know, uh, the the separating the art from the artist dilemma. Sure. uh, But, like, the... Famously treated... Women in particular very poorly. <laughs> yeah, and Vera Miles, it does seem kind of like this weird, hey, didn't you know I cast you to be it, girl? You got pregnant by another man out of vertigo and relegated to the sister of the sexy girl mm-hmm. in Psycho. I mean, she is sort of drained of her sexuality like uh, opposite her sister and there's no real suggestion that her and Loomis are gonna like now get together another movie would do that but they don't this I'm glad you know well spoiler alert for Psycho 2 ah yes yes (laughs) sorry and then also that also speaks to the power of Vera Miles performance that she's awesome in Psycho 2 yeah 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 
Hitchcock also spread some rumors about casting the mother so that the Hollywood types wouldn't leak the secret, which I ah! thought was really funny. Clever devil. And uh, Virginia Gregg did the voice. Uh, she was a radio star, although they auditioned many men and women. And she actually does persist as the mother voice in the sequels as well. Oh, really? That's right. And uh, it was an all-string orchestra for Bernard Herrmann, famous Hitchcock collaborator, one of yeah. the best composers of all time. And uh, he described this as a black and white score to reflect the starkness of the ca- of the cinematography and everything. Oh, wow. That's cool. I loved it. I, I really loved the all strings. And there was a really interesting anecdote from Paul Hirsch, who edited Star Wars, where he talks about how for temporary music, they usually use classical stuff. But when the Millennium Falcon flies into the Death Star and Luke and the gang like pop up from the smuggler's hold after the stormtroopers leave... They used a cue from Psycho, since nothing else would fit. And then John Williams, who was Bernard Herrmann's pal, wound up using the same three-note motif to begin the score that actually goes there. Oh, wait, so I never knew this. So the when, what, when they start zooming down into the trench? No, in the, um, when they're being, like, pulled in through the tractor beam, and and the stormtroopers go on, and they, like, look around, and they're like, oh, we don't see anybody here. I see, yes, wow. So there you go. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and then also the the quality you're saying of the like strings only. It just made me think about like I've never gotten to see Psycho in the theaters. It'd be so cool if you sat in like the second row and the it's coming out of the screen. You know how the yeah you know, as theaters do. Sure. Like if you're watching sharp black and white images with this like sharp no nonsense score, mm-hmm. and then also just seeing a movie that's like. The first real movie to capture a knife, how it would cut and feel. Like, if you saw this on opening week, I mean, there's a million ways that it would be my boy. But also (laughs) just that sensory thing of just, like, coming out of the theater being like, whoa, I just had, like, knives thrown at me that whole time. Yes. Oh, (laughs) man. It, It really is incredible. It does capture the movie in a way that not every score does. And I think that that is part of what makes Bernard Herrmann so unique is that a lot of people are able to develop their own style, for sure. You know, you, you you recognize John Williams stuff, you recognize Hans Zimmer stuff, but I think Bernard Herrmann really transforms his, his music in a way that fits the movies perfectly every single time. Even, yeah. even yeah. you know, his Citizen Kane stuff is incredible. The way that he shifts, even within Hitchcock's filmography, is incredible. Yeah, and uh, that it has this sort of... Even if it is sentimental music, it has some non-sentimental quality. I think makes it timeless, too. Mm-hmm. He seemed to, in life, suffer no fools, and in music, didn't really <laughs> suffer foolishness. I mean, I, I love the Psycho score, because I do think it's like very like playful, too. I mean, the beginning of that the movie, the credits and stuff, uh, are both scary and playful. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that the <laughs> title does a little, like... <laughs> Samba jiggle, uh, like a little jiggle dance. (laughs) Yeah, very fun. Very fun. The first draft that was submitted by Stefano was the one they shot. And when they watched the rough cut, Joe was like, ah, crap, it sucks. (laughs) 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 And he said that Hitchcock patted his leg and said, it's just a rough cut, Joseph. So, hey, don't be afraid to take another run at things. You might unveil the best horror movie ever made. Hey, that's awesome. They also famously didn't let people enter late and basically invented the idea of spoilers. Peggy laughed at the idea of not letting people enter, saying you'll never get the theater managers to agree. 
But Paramount talked to them and it did work even better than they expected because people would have to get there early, which means they'd see the people come screaming out and talking about it and build the hype and exhilaration as they entered. I mean, this movie is already like a ride. The fact that they were treating the line like a queue at Disneyland where you see people come out and you're like, whoa, that must have been real something in Space Mountain there. <laughs> there was also a cool trailer for it where it's him like walking through the sets and uh, he yeah. winds up in the shower where he's like, what the heck? Who's here? And then it's Vera Miles imitating the Janet Lee scream. That's fun. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's so funny that it's just like such a weird, unique thing in history of movies that there was this guy everybody liked because he offered the one thing they all liked. It was like, hey, babies, you know, like it's just like such a <laughs> and that it was like some seal of approval. And then his cameos that like it would be he didn't give a shit enough about the fourth wall. That it was like, hey, here I am. <laughs> a cameo. Look at me. Yeah, he's cool. So critics didn't really like the movie when it came out. They felt it wasn't up to the standard of Hitchcock, but there's also an element of them just being pissed that they actually had to go to the theaters instead of having previews to preserve the twist. (laughs) (laughs) And Time Magazine said the shower scene is, quote, one of the messiest, most nauseating murders ever filmed. At close range, the camera watches every twitch, gurgle, convulsion, and hemorrhage in the process by which a living human becomes a corpse. The delicate illusion of reality necessary for a creak-and-shriek movie becomes, instead, a spectacle of stomach-churning horror. So, not a fan. (laughs) You come uh, uh, often with critical reactions. I love reading film criticism. It's, like, one of my favorite hobbies, so I'm not slagging it. But, like... I don't know of any film critic who is, whatever, widely respected and people read their reviews even after they're dead. None of them got into it because their favorite movies were horror movies or comedies. Right. (laughs) So anytime you read a review, they're not the type of viewer who's like, what's the next thing? Mm -hmm. And I want to be open to the next thing that this thing is offering. They're just sort of narrow-minded about horror. So it's like, this isn't North by Northwest. So their analysis or their mind to it narrows. And then, ugh, comedies too. Like, to read Roger Ebert's review of Wet Hot American Summer Uh. is to have your heart break. (laughs) It's just like, what's going on, man? Raj, come on. a silly movie. It should be tickling you. But, but and I think it is like, if your favorite movies were comedies... And you saw Wet Hot American Summer, you'd be like, this is the number one movie of the year. <laughs> Not if you're old Raj. Nope, nope, nope. But yeah, on the other hand, audiences would come out laughing in horror like off a roller coaster. And it made a ton of money. It was the biggest hit of his career, not accounting for re-releases uh, at an adjusted gross of $400 million. Wow. And the fact that this movie was the spawn of so many other movies that spawned so many other movies, you understand why... It'd be an appeal for audiences and then for the filmmakers who saw Psycho and wanted to do something like that. Yeah. Offer up that experience. Like, uh, yeah, all around, the inspiration flows. Yeah, and it's honestly pretty emblematic of where Hitchcock was at the time in terms of, like, he was at peak showman at this time. You know, a lot of critics preferred the restraint of the British movies he had made to the flash of the Paramount movies. And this was it at its peak, basically, like I said, the exploitation movie of its day. And it 
sort of marked this huge turning point in his, in his career where there's this great book called Hitchcock, The Making of a Reputation by Robert Capsis, where he talks about the relationship that Hitchcock had with both audiences and critics and the way that he actively courted the critics that frustrated him by not seeing the artistry in movies like this. And he also complained about this in the Truffaut conversations, which led directly to the birds and the ambiguous ending at the end of the birds, which really pissed off contemporary audiences. Oh, wow. What? Because it was like, you guys got so upset about the explanation at the end so partially that also just partially taking influence from like European film again, going for more ambiguity, oh, cool. a little more okay, artistry yeah. deliberately put on screen. And, you know, people were upset by not getting a definitive answer at the end versus the critics who were still like lukewarm on him after Psycho. And so the birds yeah. kind of was not well received by either audience or critics. Huh. Yeah, he, he starts going more and more in towards like marnie and and torn curtain stuff going for things that are supposed to get critical acclaim and then for him to suddenly just be like fuck it with frenzy (laughs) 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 really great book (laughs) yeah and then a little last like family plot like "Eh, okay but but that like i don't you know watching this movie and knowing it came out in 1960 and we didn't live during the 60s but i actually did i just look great (laughs) (laughs) Nice die job. Thank you. <laughs> to live through it seemed to be, hey, this mask is dropping. Let's drop this phony white middle American, middle America myth and see what's really going on under the hood. Oh, it's bad stuff. Mm-hmm. If that was like, and then by the end of the six, it's like it's fully dropped. It is cool that Alfred Hitchcock is like, I don't know. This would be the equivalent of like somebody who's, like you said, he's in full showman mode. His legacy is secure. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he's making this movie that in some ways, like, you know, uh, influences for decades, but just also influences that decade of kind of like, you can almost see then why after the birds, there wasn't more pushing because it was like, I pushed it as far as I possibly could. I showed you a toilet flushing on screen. You what do you the want? Yeah. The fact that that wasn't in movies for 60 years up until this point is, uh, yeah. Definitely so. So let's get into the movie itself. Right yeah. off the bat, you get this great Saul Bass intro with the pumping Bernard Herman score. It's yes. frantic. It's desperate. It gets you going. Yeah. And we start out in Phoenix, Arizona. It's Friday, December the 11th. 2.43 p.m. And I like this not because those specifics are important, but to communicate that this could be any town, any time. Uh, you know, it, it's just nice. It was, yes. it was supposed to be actually a helicopter shot with its tracking through the city until we go through the window. But without today's mounts, it was too jerky for an opening. And so instead, it's this like wide pan after wide pan getting closer and closer. Uh. But I mean, again, you just talk about how revolutionary Hitchcock was. Even just being like, I think that this should be a helicopter shot as we go through Arizona right. here. <laughs> like, that's that's why like, I think we should get a drone. <laughs> what a drone camera, huh? <laughs> First, develop it for military use, <laughs> then for photography. Okay, sure. we'll get on it, Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> Sam and Marion are lazing around at their lunch break in a cheap motel, and they've been sneaking around. But Marion is putting an end to that. And he says he wants to see her under any circumstances, 
even respectability. <laughs> Problem is that they want to get married, but he's divorced and broke from alimony and his father's debts. And he says, we'll live together in a storeroom behind the hardware store. And when I write the alimony checks, you can lick the stamps. Uh, entendres. <laughs> yeah, I was also thinking like, um, you know, when I was breaking down the movie as I was watching, I was like, oh, it pretty cleanly every half hour kind of starts a new chapter. And when I did like the math or whatever, it is funny that when I looked at it, her the, one chapter is basically she goes from one hotel to another hotel. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is to meet up with this dude, and the next one is to go and get murdered. Wow. <laughs> Stay away from hotels is the secret message of this, yeah. uh, <laughs> this movie. <laughs> Airbnb all the time. <laughs> Barbarian is the counter. counter <laughs> <argument>. <laughs> yeah, she's game, but she has to rush out because she's late for work, and he has to go catch his flight. And as she enters the office, there's old Hitchcock himself at the front window. The Stetson hat. That's right. They said they wanted to do it early so that he didn't interrupt the building intensity of the story, that this was before anything had really started. It wasn't a character-specific scene. So uh, they were like, all right, yeah, just get him in there. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Although I would have liked, like, during the, like, really great Norman and Arbogasty when <laughs> he's trying to find out if Marion's still there, if there was a knock on the door of the lobby, Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> popped in his head. It was like... Rooms for me and my family? <laughs> Is there a vacancy? <laughs> no, Mr. Hitchcock. Who came in? Bye, everyone. Waves at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Winks. Da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't think that cameo would have taken away any of the suspense. No, definitely not. This oil guy comes strolling into the office with the boss. First of all, the boss's office is air-conditioned, and their area isn't, which is fucked up. Yep. Have and have nots. And second, this guy waggles $40,000 in Marion's face. <laughs> and he says, yeah. you can't buy happiness, but you can buy off unhappiness, which I think is an interesting distinction, that you can put yourself in a position to work on self-fulfillment, which does have to come from within. Ooh, Yeah. That's really cool. I, I, for me, when I was watching that, hit that Texan whatever <laughs> guy, I was thinking this time around how it's like a if most of the movie is like a mother son, this is like an example of father daughter, mm. and they both kind of have their like hangups. Yeah, right. Electra complex versus Oedipus complex action happening yes, there. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, you know, he's talking about how he's giving up his beautiful daughter. <laughs> but for that, it's all kind of about, I'm presenting this ultra father of like, <laughs> and and that's, you know, ends up being Norman and his mom's hangup is like presenting this ultra version of mother-son that like I, I, yeah, I bet if you talk to this guy's daughter, she would be like, my dad gets so f drunk <laughs> and is such a loud a-hole. And he tells, he tries to hit on secretaries <laughs> talking about how much he loves me. It's, it's so gross. My dad is so gross. Yeah, it's, it is really funny. I think that's a great comparison. I also, it's funny in the book, there's a moment where Norman is like, I tried to talk to her about this like Oedipus complex thing and be like, isn't that ah. weird? And then she was like, that's filthy. Don't talk to me. About that. 
Norman broaching the big taboo. Yeah, he, he was he was like, isn't this crazy? <laughs> <laughs> this guy, though, he does crack me up. Pat Hitchcock, who plays the other secretary there, is like, I yes. declare. And he's like, I don't. That's how I can afford to do this. Oh, <laughs> always makes me LOL. <laughs> the other LOL for me in that scene is when she goes, when he leaves and then Pat Hitchcock says to Janet Lee, he was flirting with you. He must have seen my wedding, uh, the ring of my wedding finger. Yeah. Oh, man. I love it. I also love when he goes, Lowry, I am dying of Thurston Rooney. <laughs> that should be quoted at all times. Mm-hmm. Great character. He does not on screen a lot. Makes a lot. Makes the most of it. <laughs> he makes a great impression. Yeah. So they retire to his office and Larry has Marion go to the bank to deposit this money in the safe deposit box. But Marion makes the decision to buy off on happiness by stealing the money so that she can marry Sam. And this heel turn is made clear by her changing from a white bra to a black bra. Yes. <laughs> the white cowboy hat to the black cowboy hat. Oh, yes. And then that's, I noticed, mirrored later after the murder and Norman cleans up. When Arbogast visits him, he's wearing that cool black turtleneck mm, or that black sweater. That's right. After not wearing black before that. So he has his own thing. And then when I was recently rewatching all the Psycho deconstructions along with rewatching Psycho, uh, in Psycho 2, they do the same thing. There's a point where to show that he's becoming darker, he starts where he goes from like a, a baby blue like button down or something to like a black sweater. Wow. You're like, Heel turn. Classic. Yep. <laughs> I mentioned loving the imagining it playing out in her mind through audio. She wants to talk about surprising Sam and pure face acting, but also just a classic Hitchcock driving scene. Gotta get those yes. in there. Oh, I love it. And when she's hearing that audio, that Stephen Rebello commentary, he talks about it, how it's like a fugue state. Mm. And I love, that's probably like my third favorite in this movie is the... That crazy fugue state she goes into when she's like coming up, driving and hearing people's thoughts. And then it is a lot like at the end when Norman, it's on his face and he starts hearing his mother. There's some parallel I think the movie's trying to make of like, Norman is an exceptional case, but hey, a lot of times for us to get through things, we kind of have to imagine what maybe somebody else would say or say to us Mm -hmm. or how we would react to a completely imaginary, like, when he's like, I'd like to get her and uh, her fine flesh, and then she <laughs> smiles. Yeah. It's like, well, it's the same as Norman smiling at his mom at the end. You know? Definitely. Yeah, it's cool. And uh, she sees her boss on the street, and she had told him she was going to sleep off the headache, so she panics, and she drives and drives all night. She sleeps on the dang road until this friggin' Terminator 2-ass cop <laughs> rolls up. <laughs> Have you seen this boy? (laughs) (laughs) She already told him that she didn't intend to sleep so late. And he's like, why do you keep trying to leave the conversation? (laughs) Which is so funny. Like, (laughs) what a fucking asshole this guy is. Yeah, Hitchcock had that crazy thing, too, where his dad brought him in and threw him in a jail cell (laughs) for a day. Yeah, they did the that's why you always leave a note thing from Arrested (laughs) Development. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) His dad came back. And he's like, what was that about? I was like, hey, could happen. Could happen. That life works that way. And he was also raised Catholic. I think, like, when I see that policeman's face, it does seem like, yeah, you should be, like, being, like, 
confessing. Something. Yeah. Yeah, especially with the sunglasses on, the like yeah. mirrored sunglasses. She decides to trade cars after he finally leaves her alone, and then she does spot him watching her after all. I also I love the car salesman, California Charlie. He's got this like tropey used car salesman huckster vibes, but in like a, yes. a pleasant way. He's like a good time huckster. Well, those pleasant huckster vibes were hitting me when I was watching it because I was thinking like my favorite scene when we get up to it is that scene between Arbogast and Norman when they're in the lobby mm-hmm. and they're trying to suss each other out. And what I love about it, it's what I love about the scene, it's what I love about Psycho, is people are being pleasant the whole time. Pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. And just, just got this like sordid shit going on. And that salesman is such an example of that. He's being pleasant, but the main thing is this kind of hostile, like, I want to get you, uh, give me your money. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Really great point. So, uh, hey, who knows? He's probably dressing up as his dad and (laughs) killing people. That's right. It's it's a little harder to notice, though. (laughs) (laughs) This was actually the only on location shot because both Janet and Hitchcock preferred doing stuff in the studio because it was more controlled and cheaper. You didn't have to redub stuff. But when I drive by that car dealership on Lancashire, I am a proud, 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 happy guy. <laughs> I believe it. I absolutely believe it. <laughs> she does, uh, she, yeah, she's imagining the conversation. She's driving along and the clouds open up. And so she's forced into a little motel off the highway, Bates Motel, with the Bates house watching over the cabins from above. There's a lot of great stuff there. Not only the haunting image of the mother in the window, but also just the contrast of this really tall home versus the flat and wide motel. They just really look good together. God, you're so right that it, it, it is such a, a given. <laughs> when, I, when, I, like, when I see that image, I guess, of course. And there's Rocky Mountains and there are the Statue of Liberties in uh, New York. <laughs> like, of course it would be that way. But you think about it, if somebody was just looking at a plain space... You'd have to make the, I mean, in the novel, maybe they described the house being up on it. But like, I mean, what's so cool about it is like, and you know, I love contemporary time horror and the fact that usually that's a castle on top of a mountain, but instead of it's an old beaten house next to like, everybody's been in a situation likely where they've gone into a motel that's a little past its prime and it's sad and lonesome. And that just being an identification spot rather than, I was in a horse and carriage, and it broke down, but the Count welcomed me in. Like, I love it. I love just being like, it's so rainy, I had to stop at this gross hotel. Yeah. Oh, man, it really is spectacular. There's also a really funny moment in the making of where the assistant director talks about how the full moon was super bright during this scene, and it was pissing Hitchcock off, so the grip team literally like had to block the moon from the camera with a black bowl, slowly like moving with it as... That's it when <laughs> most people would love a big full moon in their horror movie. Not this guy. <laughs> nope. And Norman is the one who comes running out from her honking, not the mother. And he seems like an absolute sweetie as he signs her in at the office. <laughs> 12 cabins, 12 vacancies ever since they moved the highway. I also love his little self-deprecating. There's stationery with Bates Motel printed on it in case you want to make your friends back home envious. And then he does like a dorky little laugh. (laughs) Yeah. And it's still like a joke that if somebody said to you in this time, you'd be like, oh, he's witty enough. I like this. Yeah. like. (laughs) But also, yes, the the, the, uh, sweetie thing. I mean, that's one of my favorite aspects that it is so unrelentingly like charming in a way that doesn't feel sweaty 
But the fact that he's just getting to play this other note this whole time, it's just, it's, it's uh, really, it's just like every actor would be able to love playing. <laughs> I get to be really likable at the beginning and seduce everybody into thinking I'm a great person. And then at the end, I yeah. get to play somebody who's a killer. That's <laughs> what everybody wants. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's something that came up in the American Psycho discussion as well, in that Brett Easton Ellis talks about why so many people wanted to do the role oh. and then didn't work out. And he talks about how for people like Leonardo DiCaprio, for people like Brad Pitt, people like Johnny Depp who are in this conversation... The idea of getting to still be the pretty boy and still have something that gives you that lead. Like you need a leading man for that role. But then to also have that darkness isn't necessarily something that they get to express a lot in movies. So I think it does work really well here as well to have that inner torment. Every pretty boy's dream is getting to do that. (laughs) What serves Anthony Perkins more than any other actors, though, is there is a sensitive quality to him that is feels more tender and feminine than than any uh christian bale could offer sure sure <laughs> marion checks in as marie samuels from la and norman hesitates when choosing her cabin but then picks the first he also reveals that she's just 15 miles from fairvale where sam is which is kind of tragic oh. when you consider that if not for the rain she could have just made it that night and avoided what's coming yeah. especially considering the rain lets up almost immediately oh my god so cruel fate <laughs> Uh, yeah, also, I love that it does seem to be hinge on. At one point, the movie seems to hinge entirely on he's going to get one key. She's like, I'm from Los Angeles. And he grabs another key to be like, oh, wait, I could peep on a woman from L.A.? <laughs> I don't know why that like is the moment, but she goes Los Angeles. Hachi machi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ha ha ha. Woo. Um, and then the Fairvale. Just so you know, I co-wrote this Pee Wee's Big Holiday movie, and Pee Wee works at a diner like Norman Bates does in Psycho Two, and wow, yes. the movie is called The Town He Lives in Is Fairville, and it is wow. Truly, I've never shared this, and who gives a shit? But it was my <laughs> way of like referencing Psycho. Wow, I love that. It was the Fairvale Fairville. Yeah. I really love that. Hey, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I also think it's interesting, though she's not exactly the coolest customer. Norman is the first one not to suspect Marion, and it's because he's also hiding something. Yes. Oh, I mean, that's what makes that scene between two people so great. They're both got secrets. Mm hmm. And we do see some of his repression, too, though. He can't even say the word bathroom to Marion. He does invite her up to the house for dinner, but his mother freaks the hell out. No floozies in my kitchen. By candlelight, I suppose, in the cheap erotic (laughs) fashion of young men with cheap erotic minds. Oh, God, every line she says is so good. (laughs) Cheap erotic minds. It's the voice is so great. Virginia Gregg spent, sends chills down your spine and she's yelling so loud that Marion can hear them down at the cabins, which is really funny to me to imagine Norman having that conversation <laughs> with himself at full volume up there. <laughs> yeah, is it to her benefit? I, I, Norman, is that why you're doing this? <laughs> but if Marion cannot go to the sandwiches, Norman must bring the sandwiches to Marion. And she apologizes to Norman for causing him trouble. But he says, no, no, she isn't quite herself today. And there's this amazing shot of them with Norman standing so as to have his reflection in the mirror for that. Yes! Beautiful. I I, uh, got so excited around Halloween time. Not this morning when I watched it, but the last time I watched it, 
I saw that for the first time. I saw that beautiful like reflection as he's saying she's not herself today. I was like, wow, very, very cool. Mm. Oh man. And there's so there's great. a Loomis reflection later when him and Norman are talking when they're having their little face off at the countertop. There's a mirror up and you see, but I don't know what that's telling us. <laughs> they eat in the office parlor so as to not have it be so officious. <laughs> like I said, this this eating scene here is is one of my favorites in movies, period. It's covered in taxidermy, and the two that the camera lingers on represent Norman's warring sides, mm. one a fierce owl representing his mother's aggression, and one a meek-looking crow, the normal Norman. Yes. And there's this great conversation between the two of them about hating the look of stuffed beasts versus birds because of their passivity and how a hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. And it kind of leads to this defensive moment where it's the first sort of like pushing on the boundaries Mm -hmm. because Marion goes, Oh, you don't have a lot going on, huh? Which is very funny, but you also can like see how that would be like, all right, I'm like, Oh, I was just revealing this to you. You don't have to fucking dunk on me. like that." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's cool. How that scene, like you don't clock it necessarily exactly the point when it starts getting darker, but it's sort of went invisible over, you know, as you're watching it. Yeah, and he says a boy's best friend is his mother, after all. And it is also ironic, after asking where she was going, he immediately backs down and says, oh, I didn't mean to pry, compared to the famous leering through a peephole, which is as (laughs) prying as it gets, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) The the two Normans. He says, we're all in our private traps, and none of us can ever get out. We scratch and claw, but only at the air, only at each other, and for all of it, we never budge an inch. Sometimes we deliberately step into those traps, and sometimes we're born into them, Norman says. And I, yeah, I guess that's what him and Marion both share in this moment. It's the thing that clicks her, going like, oh, I gotta get back. I guess that's the other tragic aspect of this, too, is she changed her mind about the money before uh, she got an opportunity to redeem herself. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, because he, 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 he says, oh, I do fantasize about killing her, but she's ill from raising me. My father died when I was five. And another man convinced her to build the, the motel before he died shockingly as well. And it was too much for her because a son is a poor substitute for a lover. Okay, Norman. <laughs> there it is again. <laughs> and he says, if you love someone, you don't abandon them, even if you hate them. And as he says that, the owl slash mom representation is looming over them. <laughs> I mean, it's tapping into the thing. I mean, like, mm-hmm. uh, somebody's like, how much are you going to devote yourself to the woman who brought you on Earth? It provokes a response in people. <laughs> sure, sure. And Marion tries to delicately suggest institutionalizing her, and Norman gets very upset by this. They always try and call the madhouse someplace, he says, and we all go a little mad sometimes, haven't you? Obviously, that conversation and pointed haven't you convinces her to return to Phoenix tomorrow. Wowie. Yeah, obviously, you know, he says it, meaning his time, and then she can think about how she went a little mad there. But the the appeal of this is uh, that scene, this parlor scene, when I saw it, it was, like I said, when I realized, like, oh, I'm watching a grown-up movie. I was watching this because my mom knew it was going to be on TV, and my mom is a cool person, and I... Wanted to share her interests, so I was like, yes, mother, if you want me to watch Psycho, mother, I will watch it for you, mother. Like, I had my own little, like, funny thing. Yeah, this this scene, and then the subsequent scene, the psycho scene, the shower scene was, like, so 
thrilling to watch as a 10-year-old. And she also reveals her true name to him at this point, Crane, not Samuels. Ah. And of course, with Crane, the stuffed birds, easy to draw a line there. I love all the bird stuff in this. And then, like, later when you see Norman, like, chewing, and it's like he's, mm. like, mawing on seeds and stuff. Yeah, like, it's like his candy corn is in the shape of uh, seeds, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. He pulls aside a portrait to peek through the wall at her getting uh, undressed, and the hyper close-ups of his eyes are incredible. It's the best uh, shot, I think, in Psycho. I love that. Like, And Psycho 2 has that amazing people scene that almost, like... Right, the reversal. Tries to top it, and it does. Yeah. <laughs> And she tallies her spendings, then tears it up and flushes the scraps. This is the legendary first toilet in movies, breaking the porcelain ceiling. Uh, (laughs) Stefano said that they expected to get more resistance on that, but the censors were just like, yeah, like this movie is like, (laughs) if it was sort of like, let's drop masks. It is also like, can we get over the fact that we all poop and pee and we flush it down tubes in our house? Is it really that scary of a thing to talk about? (laughs) He finally heads back up to the house, but instead of going up to where mother is, he hesitates, then heads for the kitchen. He's trying to avoid her for as long as possible, but it doesn't work. And as Marion steps into a cleansing shower, free (laughs) now from the guilt, as she's decided to return the money, she is intruded upon by Mama Bates, and they talked about how crucial it was to play on Marion's troubles right oh, up until awesome. the last second so you don't see it coming. And that's why she's doing yes. the tallying and flushing it and everything. Yeah, so it totally works. Like, right. So what is she going to do about this money? And then the trade-off is so... It's almost like a funny joke where it's like, you guys think this yeah. is about <laughs> money? No, this is always about... <laughs> A guy's going to watch a woman bathe and then kill her. That it does has nothing to do with money. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, the him going into that house, I was just appreciating too when I was watching like, you know, if if everything is kind of getting set up like a practical joke or a prank you're pulling on the audience, this is just all perfect. Like the fact that when you get there, you see her silhouettes, you're like, "Okay, I believe it." Then you see him going there, up the stairs, he comes back down, then you see her it's just like somebody telling you the perfect joke. Like, they don't forget a detail yeah. to set it up in the best way. <laughs> Absolutely. And before I mentioned that the chat in the office is one of my favorite scenes, but this shower scene is probably one of the most famous scenes yeah. in all of movies, and rightfully so. You know, in, in, a, in a special feature that I really loved about Hitchcock's influence on modern cinema, Martin Scorsese talks about how the Sugar Ray Robinson fight in Raging Bull was so influenced by this shower scene and everything. It's it's incredible. It's unique. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I mean there, as you see in the remake, there know, is no imitation. No matter what you do, you can't. <laughs> I mean, it, it did start slashers of just like, Skin plus knife. <laughs> yeah. There's this compound thing that I have to imagine in 1960 when you're watching it, which is like, you're already like, seriously, I would be like, you're flushing a toilet. Whoa. Okay. what? You're just like registering that. <laughs> but the fact that like you get dual getting thrown off your balance, it's that the main character is getting disposed of. So you lose all the safety you've been given in every horror movie up until that point, which is like, nothing can happen. The main character, if she'll survive, will survive. And so to lose that is a Mm -hmm. huge thing. But then to have it happen exactly at the moment when you're vulnerable as a person and a bathroom is like an unseen place where an unseen murder is happening, 
I would just be so scared of what was going to come next from the movie because I'd be like, well, they invaded how I feel safe in a shower and they invaded the rules of like how a movie should operate. It's a, it'd be an amazing experience in the theater, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) It really would. Uh, It actually took up one third of Janet's shooting time. This one scene, she only worked three weeks on the movie and this shower scene took seven days, uh, seven shooting days even. Amazing. And she said she obviously wasn't nude since they weren't going to show her, but they struggled with finding the right outfit. And apparently they poured over what Janet referred to as strip teaser <laughs> outfits. <laughs> and she said the problem was they all had whirly gigs on them and wouldn't ah. work in the shower. <laughs> Instead, they used this like moleskin thing that dancers use on blisters and sore spots okay. that was adhesive on one side and like flannel on the other. Yeah. And there's that moment where you see like a little the tip of a knife go into her. Uh, like it's a blink and you'll miss it. People say like, oh, there's never a point where it actually cuts skin, but like, and the weird part is when it goes into her abdomen, you know, much has been made in Halloween and other movies that the knife is a penis and you know, this movie, a knife is a penis, Right. but it's funny when it goes into her, that little like partner stomach, you do hear this like, ooh. <laughs> Like, it's all sounds of attack, and in that moment, she's like, yo, <laughs> So, draw the conclusions you want. <laughs> there you go. In less than one minute, we see 78 Damn. camera setups and 52 cuts. Yes. Cuts, indeed. <laughs> uh, all in relation to the sound of the knife slashing against the skin, celluloid cuts to replace the cuts of the flesh. Right on. They had the prop master bring in a bunch of melons to figure out which one made the right stabbing noise. And for anyone wondering which melon you should use, it is a cassava melon. Ah, Alfred Hitchcock. Good. So if I ever get caught, somebody's like, it sounded like you were stabbing people in there. I'm like, no, I was stabbing. Oh, just making a cassava. Yeah, that <laughs> Saul Bass storyboarded this, although they were all like, let's put the rumor to rest that he actually directed it. That's not true. And that the 78 shots explains why it took so long to shoot, obviously. Yes. Flushing blood is foreshadowed by the toilet shot, and Marion collapses there. The shower is still running as she reaches for help and finds only the curtain. And there was a, a nude model who stood in for this to do the actual collapse. And the, like, Norman's lively and conflicted eye close-ups now contrasted with, like, the lifelessness oh, of yeah. her on the cold floor. God, it's just so That's powerful. That's a match. You're right. Like, from his eye yeah. to her eye. Right. Wow. And it's great acting. I mean, they wanted to get contacts, but back then they were obviously less sophisticated. So they said it was going to take six weeks for her eyes to adjust to wearing them. So Hitchcock told her, well, you're just going to have to go it alone, old girl. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And they had to hand focus as they pulled back, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can see uh, now it doesn't have whatever digital slickness, but it's uh, magnificent. Took over 20 takes, they said, for for that one shot. And the issue with this arose because Janet said that Hitchcock was actually very considerate of the water temperature so that she'd be comfortable as possible while she's draped over the tub with her head on the floor. But the steam made her moleskin thing lose the adhesion. And she was like, wow, I really don't want to have to do this shot again. And so since the camera wasn't going to get a look, just the electricians in the rafters, she basically said, fuck it, we're going for it, modesty be damned. <laughs> she wanted to get home, back to Jamie Lee. <laughs> yeah. And Norman comes rushing in after finding Mother covered in blood, and he covers up the crime scene, then sinks the evidence in her car in the swamp, including the MacGuffin Cash Monet that <laughs> he didn't even know about. 
<laughs> yep, the money is gone. Don't worry about it anymore, folks. And exactly. if you are, if you're like Sam and Lila worrying about it, you're a bunch of losers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they said that they sank the car with a hydraulic lift that they sank and then a ramp, and they said it actually was done in one one take, which is Ooh. great. I've heard, I don't know if this is necessarily true. I forget who like wrote this or said this, but it was like, the swamp also is a continuation of this like toilet thing of just like mm, sludge. And I see that pulling stuff out, and the the fact that the sure. last shot is just this like gross turd bowl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and like you said, we're at exactly an hour into the movie wow. uh, when this framework shifts again. Yeah, half, and then yeah, the next half hour yeah ends with uh, the the full dismissal of the body. It's it's exactly a half hour, right? When it goes to the tool shop now, right. Meanwhile, Sam is writing his letter. It's another layer of tragedy as he decides the money doesn't matter. <laughs> he writes, Dearest, write as always, Marion. I'm sitting in this tiny back room, which isn't big enough for both of us, and suddenly it looks big enough for both of us. So what if we're poor and cramped and miserable? At least we'll be happy. <laughs> she should have waited. Oh, my God. These were the characters we wanted in the beginning. Wholesome folk. <laughs> Lila Crane, Marion's sister, walks in. She's scared about the missing Marion, and they're both being watched by Detective Arbogast, who also wants to talk, because he's been hired by the oil guy to recover the money. He says, we're always quickest to doubt people who have a reputation for being honest, but just in case, he's going to check around. That's awesome, and I love how that tool shop, too, is just filled with, like, sharp rakes, and there's knives pointing down on the wall, and a woman talking about, like, how can I get an insecticide that can really kill bugs without them feeling pain? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> even when you get away from the hotel, it's like these like nice little corners are always fixated. <laughs> Omnipresent. And yeah, and then when Al- Arborgas comes in, it's the best, man. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, were you talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> it leads him, though, to Bates Motel, where, like we said, Norman is chowing on some candy corn. <laughs> I-, I love... This performance is incredible as he's like casual to start, but he gets nervous and Arbogast is like a sharp cookie and, uh, you know, he's like cornering Norman with his lies and the camera like gets closer and even just the the very little things like he's there's a moment where Norman is like, I should stop saying specifics Ah! and he like starts to say something and then just goes with very early. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, with that part where he goes, uh, uh, very very early yeah <laughs> like oh that was the time she left very very early no that's this is my favorite scene in the movie when he comes and pumps him for information it's my favorite scene in movies i love any moment in a movie when somebody has a secret and they keep slipping up and it gets worse and worse so this is like the <laughs> version of that scene and i also like how at no point and this is why i feel like it's also like the scene of the movie is like, because it's whole thing is, at no point does it ever become unpleasant. These guys are being Ooh. so, doing so many crazy mind games with each other, but at no so point cordial. do they ever like stop smiling. And it does yes. feel like this like, uh, this does seem to be where we're at now. After industrialization, after World War II, we know we can't be barbarians. But we still are, so we're just kind of like, hey, so I was there, hey, and she left very, very early. <laughs> Pained smiles, painted yes, on. Yes, yes, it's the best. And then, uh, oh my God, um, the amazing acting by Marty Balsam. From the moment he walks in to that amazing payphone scene, 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's like the best phone acting I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's so great. I truly believe not that he's just talking to another actor. He's talking to a character. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's really great. And yeah, he, he noted the shadow of the mother in the window. And so when Norman won't let him in to visit, he, he does call Lila and Sam and he says, I'm going to go check on this. I'll be back in an hour. Yeah. And, and you know, you, people can dismiss this as a whatever. But because the first half of the movie is so much about how Marion is being watched and how a woman is being looked at by men, mm-hmm. it's really cool that when, like, Marion's gone... It's almost as if the movie now, it's like, well, what's there to fixate on? And it's like, oh, let's get at what really it is. How men relate to each other. And so then it becomes this whole thing about, like, how do you push off Marty Balsam? And then at the very end, we'll get to it, but it's like that whole face-off with Loomis is just complete territorial pissing (laughs) by two guys. And it's like, once you get Marion out of the picture, it just becomes this weird, like, fight over what man is going to get to be the star of this movie and the hero of this movie? Our guest is like, can I be the hero? Nope. Lewis, can I be? Lila's like, can Maybe. I be? <laughs> yeah. Arbogast climbs the stairs in the house looking for Mama Bates, but suddenly she emerges, no invalid after all, but having the strength of a knife-wielding young man. Oh, boy. And that overhead shot, the history of overhead shots and thrillers that just automatically make you go like, Hey, if God is looking down on this, bad shit is going to happen because only yeah. he knows. <laughs> oh, man, it's so great. And, and Arbogast stumbles back down the stairs after being slashed. And, and Mrs. Bates pursues, stabbing him several more times at the bottom and finishing the job. Uh, and as for the falling back, this was done with a rig where he just sat on it and they turned him a bit back and forth while he flailed. Yeah, <laughs> it's the most Combine that with the part. process plate. <laughs> Yeah, it is silly, but that's a moment of retro, like where it like works for me, and that like it is pleasantly cheesy. Oh, I to love me. it! Oh, <laughs> yes, I'll love yeah. it for the rest of my life. And the fact that it comes after like a genuine will hold up forever scare of her coming out, mm-hmm. and then yeah, the the final um, uncut in the new uncut version that just came out that Universal released. The first one is you see partial more Marion when she's taking off her bra when he's looking through the peephole. The other one is like you see blood washing off his hands. And the third one, and this has all been like new to me in the last year, is because I only was watching the older versions. Yeah, extra stabbings on Arbogast once he gets there. And dude, when though I've watched my whole life one stab. When there's multiple ones, it's intense. It's intense. Yeah. And you go like, really oh, is. that is the visual grammar for slasher movies forever. The fact that they only got one when it's like, oh, in most slasher movies, yeah, you get a like seven good stabs in there before you leave, leave a scene. <laughs> it really takes off when he puts Arbogast in a sleeping bag and starts hitting him <laughs> against a tree. <laughs> and when he fights him back with her, his telekinetic powers and makes his mask split. That's, that makes and there's like a off. weird worm and he goes into space. I don't know. Hey, it all holds up. <laughs> <laughs> Sam and Lila are freaking out now that it's been three hours so Sam heads out to the motel uh, with Lila, or excuse me, while Lila waits in case Arbogast comes out. And it's funny when he arrives and Norman is still out of the swamp watching Arbogast go down. And, you know, again, we talked about the Ed Gein comparisons to, or Ed Gein comparisons to Texas Chainsaw. But there's a moment here as well where, like, this is the third person showing up 
and it's like the third person shows up at the ranch in that movie and there's a moment where Leatherface is like where are these kids coming from (laughs) (laughs) and that really I like that felt to Norman or that felt like Norman here at the swamp as well yes Uh, I love that part it's a total like emo band album cover when he's like standing at that Mm -hmm. swamp looking over his shoulder I also love you know I know Hitchcock's into his little like doppelganger doubles and it's usually with ladies but with the fellas here it's like this guy's coming to find Norman and then Norman's like hearing him and they could be brothers. They, they sort of, yeah. you know, and, and each of them attracted Marion in their own way and beguiled her. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, they go get the deputy sheriff when Bates nor Arbogast answer and he thinks Arbogast must have gone after the money on his own because Norman's mom is dead and buried for 10 years. He couldn't have seen her. Yes. Only case of murder, suicide in Fairvale history. Yes, yes. That sheriff's say, I mean, I love it being from a small town. Hitchcock has these really great kind of small town comic characterizations of like the salt of the earth sheriff with his like gossipy wife. The yeah. thing that's like really interesting about to me is in that scene is... um. I love that scene where they go and visit the sheriff because it is, like, the most tightropey the movie gets of, like, how are they going to talk about this without revealing the secret? So when you rewatch <laughs> it, it becomes really fun for that reason. But also does this cool thing that's odd, but I think it has to be chosen deliberately for some reason. But the sheriff is talking to one thing, and the wife, the wife, his wife is in the background. And then it'll cut to uh, Lila and Sam, and the wife is in the background of that frame. And normally you would just have her remain with the sheriff or in one frame. Mm. But when you go back and forth, A, it's disorienting. Your eye just kind of goes like, what? what's <laughs> happening with this woman? But I think in a way what it does is she becomes like the surrogate for what the audience or what that character is doing in the moment. So when oh, she's yeah. in the frame with the sheriff, she's like, I get what he's saying. And then when the, <laughs> it goes to them, she's kind of like, yeah, this is a mystery, huh? <laughs> Sam insists, though, so the sheriff agrees to investigate the next morning. Norman, meanwhile, brings Mother down to the fruit cellar, despite her major protestations. (laughs) She says, you hit me there once and you won't do it again. Interesting tie-in as well for the fruit cellar with his distaste for dampness and the smell of rot in general, which he fought against by learning taxidermy for the mom. But you can imagine how that smell would remind him of the corpse. Oh, Psycho and the Psycho franchise is... Top movies for a smell that can get across. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he talks about it earlier with Arbogast. He's like, I always chase the sheets. It's a dampness. It's kind of a creepy smell. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's something that's really bugs people out when you go into a hotel room. Or we've all had the experience of the kid with the older parent. You walk into their house and it's a little antiquated. And you're like, uh, mm-hmm. get me back home to my <laughs> modern house. Grandma, take me yes. home. there's a great shot as they keep her face covered while he brings her down and there's a great moment in the book as well here where she says you don't love me anymore and norman says if i didn't love you you know where you'd be today the state hospital for the criminally insane that's where and she gets real quiet and says yes norman i suppose you're right but i wouldn't be there alone whoa and then the 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 dual yeah the double speak of that that's really great love it and that is the bind he's in. He can't turn her in because he knows in some way at this point before he t- totally goes full mother that yep. he would be turning himself in. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. The sheriff says he checked before service at church the next day and it all seemed copacetic. But Lila demands Sam take her to the motel. They're going to register and then search. 
and yeah, they're they're kind of suspicious of each other. In the book, again, just as a small change, he watches them talk through the little people, and so he knows that they're like trying to distract him and oh. like go look for mother. So that was interesting. That is interesting because you know people slag when we get to it the the psychiatrist explanation scene. I like it. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you why later. But I don't think it's sluggish. The part, the only part of this movie that I ever kind of go like, eh, is when Sam and Lila are hatching their plan in the hotel room because mm-hmm. the only way I can kind of like go like, I guess it's giving a suspense that we know they're wrong about mother and they're wrong about the money. And so they're in over their head and they could still get hurt. Like it functions on that level. But yeah. exactly to your point. Then in the book to know that he's listening then really would make that scene kick up a notch. So yeah, and it would kind of like be this cool little echo of him doing it with the her sister. Oh, that'd been cool. Anyway, yeah, it's a nice little moment. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they investigate the cabin. They find still no shower curtain, which is a big tell, and a scrap of paper showing a figure being taken from forty thousand. Of course, this uh, is the big clue. So they know it's time to find Mrs. Bates. Lila's going to go up to the house while Sam distracts Norman in the office. I love this line where she's like, I can handle a sick old woman, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it's not her healthy son dressed up as her. Yeah. But why would I worry about that? <laughs> Sam's distraction when he goes out there, he's just like, he just straight up accuses Norman of taking the money. It's like the worst possible <laughs> subterfuge. Oh, yeah, yeah, Sam. Come on. Norman's out there, like, doing a different voice entirely and throwing it. Like, you can do a little performance here. I also love, in addition to this, you know, last 20 minutes, just entirely building the template for all slasher movies, you know, like, it's not a killer point of view frame, but, like, when Lila's going up and it's her point of view going up the house... So mm. dope. Yes. The whole like moving around in her bedroom that becomes like Silence of the Lambs or Friday 13th going into it. When you see Norman walking up through the window and it, it's like when Jason's coming through the in Friday 13th part two and you see him through. The scariest shot in the movie is him walking up that hill going through the glass. Mm-hmm. But then with Sam, this is all happening when it's the third. You pointed out it's like the third time somebody's shown up. It's like a joke that somebody tells where it's like the first person showed up this, second person. And the third thing, like when he first is across from that desk with Marion, it's all pleasantries, little hostility. When he meets with Arbogast, it's passive aggressive half and half. When he meets (laughs) with Sam at the end, it is aggressive, aggressive. And the new (laughs) template outside of Slashers that gets me is... The jock versus nerd fighting for the pretty blonde. Mm, it built that forever definitely. now. <laughs> yes. The punchline builds and builds, and it's great. But you're saying his subterfuge uh, is so lousy. <laughs> it, it definitely is. He literally is like, I bet your mother will tell us. <laughs> and I, but I also love how cocky Norman is in that situation. He's like, yeah, okay. And he's like chopping on yeah. his gum. And it's candy <laughs> and stuff. He knocks out Sam. He runs up. Lila sees this. Uh, she hides in the fruit cellar. Obviously, there is Mrs. Bates, but when Lila reaches out, Bates spins, revealing a desiccated old corpse. Ah! Apparently, this was a real fucker to shoot. (laughs) The prop master had to rehearse spinning the wheels backwards at the right time over and over again, but it's worth it. Thank God it was a skeleton. It wouldn't get so dizzy. (laughs) You imagine if they used the live skeleton, how dizzy they would have (laughs) gotten? I was thinking when I was watching, I was like, man, to sit in the theater, you would get the double scream of seeing a skull and then 
See a Norman running through the door. You'd be like, ah. huh? And then, <laughs> It's so great. The one-two punch. Big time. He's dressed as his mother as he runs in. Sam manages to stop him. And, and so this leads into the psychologist sort of outro. But you need this time to parse what you just watched. Uh-huh. To sort of take it in. You know, the, they talk about Norman Bates no longer exists. Uh-huh. He only half existed to begin with. And Norman's mother, in quotes, confesses to his killing her and the new lover when he felt replaced. And in his guilt, he erased the crime by bringing her back to life in his mind. And the problem was that his pathological jealousy of her meant that she was the same for him in his mind and killed the young girls that he was attracted to. And sure, it's a little exposition-y, but to have this like concrete moment to just absorb what's been happening this whole time, reflect on the movie that we saw now with this new information. Oh, without a doubt. I think it's not only good, but vital to the movie. Yes, yes, without a doubt. I'll quote my uh, friend here, Chris Stangle. You said exactly what he said, my friend. I remember he tweeted this once, and he's talking about, uh, there was a prompt, are you for or against the psychiatrist scene at the end of Psycho? And Chris said, it's shorter than its reputation, It's very funny, Oakland is amped, and it contains a bunch of crucial story information that is not actually otherwise apparent. Great scene. It's true. That actor is so on fire and delivering Mm -hmm. it in such a fun, entertaining way. That scene never drags for me. I love watching the scene. Yeah. And then if you didn't have it, you'd go walk out of Psycho being like having those dumb arguments with friends about how it worked and what it meant. And, yeah. and uh, also, I think it works in the tensions of how the movie's been working, which is kind of like, let's not show toilets. Okay, we'll show you a toilet. <laughs> it's the most clinical way we can think about waste, but we'll show it. The movie kind of does it at the end then in a mischievous way. It's sort of like you've seen yeah. so much psychological waste. Mm-hmm. And then to have this kind of charismatic psychiatrist just kind of come in and button it (laughs) it's it's, it's nice it is it is and unfortunately now the mother has completely taken over his mind and in the transport we get another internal monologue scene like the marion ones which i think is another great reflection of the similarities between them yes and he sits there thinking in her voice camera zoom i wouldn't even hurt a fly skull superimposition ah yeah perfect skull (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) And I hadn't thought, I hadn't watched Psycho with this in mind, and I'm sure it was just the mission statement that I began watching the movie this go around, of just being like, I'm going to look at this entirely on the, like, keeping up appearances angle, when people are keeping up appearances. And I forgot about the last line, but then it did kind of knock me out when she specifically, it's about, I'll let them watch me not hurt this fly, and then I know others will think about me as a good person. Yeah, It's the bind of the movie. It's the bind of Norman. It's the bind of Marion. Like, to kind of go back, that's sort of the horrific ending. It's like, oh, it's going back to being trapped in... Mm. in oh my God. What images you have to put out to people. It's exhausting. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's the end. The swamp is dragged. and And now, Paul... We've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Well, George, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having, again, having me on here. 
This has been such a blast. For me as well. The, the work you do to research and for us to share that information and talk about it with others is so cool. So thank you again. <laughs> thank you. This has been such a lovely, lovely chat. Yeah, I would say it's the best horror movie because, uh, yeah, what, I'll, I'll say it. It just it kicked off what it, it was the pivot point for suspense and into horror movies. It's the pivot point. After this, yeah. it's contemporary, in real life, in settings you recognize horror movies. And it's, you know, after that, it'd be very rare for us to go back to Bram Stoker times. <laughs> yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is the perfect Venn diagram of getting showman Alfred Hitchcock and artiste Alfred Hitchcock at the same time. The performances, we've talked about it over and over, are just out of this world. The cinematography is great. The way that it looks just in general. Bernard Herrmann's score is incredible. I I mean, Tony Perkins genuinely best performance yeah. in movies it's just the best horror movie ever made what else do you oh want oh my from gosh me? come on no <laughs> I, 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 it, it is a really uh spectacular movie yeah still powerful it's cool hell yeah that's the other thing yes very much still holds up today paul thank you so much for for giving us your time it's plug time now if you want to direct people towards oh. anything i know new don't stop or will die record comes out yes that's right that's right oh i'll, I'll share that i just wanted to say you know it, it's funny the um norman when you were saying that it's this mix of art and entertainment and i do think that's probably my favorite movies when i'm getting entertained and recognizing some artistry at the same time and so mm-hmm. to get that it also makes me think of Something that I thought of of <laughs> watching this, which you've probably heard this art, you know, it's to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And I think Psycho is that. It's like when he's saying that stuff about you're being feel trapped in that moment, anybody who feels disturbed is relieved by that moment. Anybody who's comfortable is like, wait, there's people out there who feel trapped? Shit. And they're <laughs> talking about it? Shit. <laughs> But anyway, yes, my band, Don't Stop or Will Die, we have a podcast called Song a Week, where every Wednesday we release a brand new fully produced song. We're up to nearly 100 songs right now. And tomorrow we're releasing our album. You can buy it at don'tstoporwilldie.com. Vinyl only. It's called Beezus. And it has the 12 best songs of our first 50 songs on Song a Week. And also, yeah, I have my own horror podcast that I get to do uh, with Matt Gorley, who's uh, one of the greats. It's called With Gorley and Rust, and people can check that out, too. Oh, also, I do a voice on a show called The Great North on Fox on Sundays. And if you like funny, relaxed things. I like those things. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very sweet, sweet, funny show. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you should watch that, too. It's, it's really great. Huge endorsements of all of those things. Paul is great. I love with Gorley and Rust, like I said, is a huge influence on this show. And Don't Stop or Will Die, best concert that I have ever been to. I mean, I had just the Damn, best time. Damn, the Philadelphia show, did we get to meet? Yes, we did. Uh, had a great time. Oh, and right. This was, I think it was like the first of three times I've seen you guys here where like, it was just the hottest room in the world. And, and it was in that like was... co-op-y uh, art center. But when yes. I was there and I was looking at all the posters, it was so cool because they would have like live the beyond screenings with like yes. accompaniment by Goblin. I was like, this place uh, is so cool. I'm actually seeing Suspiria with Goblin there on Friday. Damn! So. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's awesome. I mean, I'll quickly just say when I was in Philadelphia, dude, 
I loved it so much because it was my first time there and I didn't know how arty it was. Oh, just hell like yeah. Every corner I was turning, I was just seeing like art there and it felt so cool because it was like New York is a stone's throw away. You go to New York to bring your art and to sand down the edges and to walk around Philadelphia and see like real vibrant art alive on Mm -hmm. the streets is just it's a very cool city you live in my friend (laughs) i love it as far as my plugs you can find me on twitter at little horror phl that username applies pretty much everywhere including instagram and letterboxd but also the patreon uh if you want to find bonus episodes we've done all kinds of great stuff branson reese was on there to talk about the 13 best animated horror shorts from 1929 to 1951 We've talked about The Blob 1988 with Mike Mitchell. All kinds of really great stuff. So check out the Patreon. Also, upcoming regular episodes. uh, Mark Rennie is coming on to talk about Carrie. Matt Apodaca is coming on to talk Barbarian, which is our newest release yet. Very excited about a lot of stuff coming up for the best little horror house. Very cool. So uh, you're going to want to stick around for all that stuff. Most definitely. Most definitely. And uh, yeah, thank you again, George. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.